So the scripture reading this morning is from the book of Acts, uh, our fourth and last week where we're looking at Acts chapter 8. We spend four weeks in this one chapter, but it's a pivotal chapter in the life of the Christian church because in one chapter, in just one chapter, we see the seeds of God's global plan to bless the world with the message of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus had laid out the plan for how this was going to work in Acts chapter 1 when he told his disciples right before, right before he returned to heaven, he told them that they were going to be witnesses to what they had seen and what they had experienced, witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we've seen all of that in Acts chapter 8. We've seen them in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and now in our text this morning and Going out through the rest of the book of Acts, we see God's initial steps to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. So let me invite you to stand if you're able. I'm going to read Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 26. And when I'm finished, I'm going to make the statement that this is the word of the Lord, and I'm going to invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is God's word. Please be seated. I, I learned um, this past week that Will Metzger died. Now, you might not have ever heard of Will Metzger. Will Metzger is a, was a pastor in our denomination, and he was a campus minister for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at the University of Delaware, which is where I first met Will. Starting, though, starting campus ministry at the University of Delaware in 1965 and serving on that one campus for more than 50 years before he was forced by his health to retire. Will Metzger told the story one time about uh, an an incident years ago when he got a phone call late in the night, and it was the rough voice of an older man. And the man on the other end of the line said, is this Willie Metzger who used to live in Baltimore? Well, wasn't sure who it was or 
how he should answer, but he said, yes. And the man said, you know, 17 years ago, I was a bus driver on a bus taking a group of college students to a big missions conference in Urbana, Illinois. And he said to Will, you were the guy who stayed up all night long on that overnight drive listening to me about my family's problems and telling me about Jesus. He said, I, live, I, I was housed while you guys were at the conference. I was staying at a hotel near the convention, and you even came to my room one night and said, come, come join us. Come, to, come with us to the, to the meeting. But I, I said, no, I, kept, I, just wanted to, I just wanted to drink my beer and watch TV. I wanted to be left alone. And then as we were driving home, you, you, you kept telling me about Jesus. You urged me to become a Christian, and you left me with a, with a Bible and a little note. I don't know if you remember that. And we'll, by this point, yes, he remembered the, the conversation, but he didn't know where the guy was going with it. And he said, well, you know, he said, just a couple of months ago, I reached up onto my shelf and I found that Bible. And for the first time, I opened that Bible and I saw your note and I read it. And the Holy Spirit used that Bible to soften my heart. He said to Will, I really got converted. God kept after me all these years. I've been baptized. I've joined a little church here. I just wanted you to know what happened. Keep loving people to the Lord, Willie, no matter how long it takes. The faithful sharing of the gospel, when one man's need aligns with another man's witness, and the consequences of that conversation resound through all eternity. What we just read is one of the most remarkable stories in the book of Acts. It is a conversation that will resound for all eternity. And I want us to look at it in four categories. We have an honest, we have an honest inquiry. That's where we get to understand this African official a little bit better. We have a faithful witness. This is Philip's response to God's call to go share with uh, this African official. And then we have a clear understanding. This is where Philip explains the message of Jesus, starting with the Old Testament. And finally, we have an appropriate response, the response of the African who believes the message of Jesus and wants to join the church, right? So those are the four headings. Now, they're all written in the bulletin for you, but let's start with the honest inquiry. Now, I say inquiry because there really is a profound question that's asked of Philip in verse 34 about the identity of the person that is being referenced in this passage from the prophet Isaiah that's being read by this African government official. And we'll get to Isaiah and we'll get to the question in a little bit more detail, but this is an opportunity for us to understand a little bit better this stranger who we're meeting for the very first time. Who is this man who ends up making this, this inquiry? Well, we know, we know a couple of things. We know he's, we know he's an Ethiopian. Now, there is a country of of Ethiopia today, but the term was a little bit broader in the ancient world. It was, the, it was a reference to a, to a larger region in Africa south of Egypt, perhaps including modern-day Ethiopia, but more immediately what is today uh, largely Sudan, directly south of Egypt. Now, what's important about this is two things primarily. First, this is not, this is not northern Mediterranean Africa, you know, Egypt, Libya. This is continental Africa, where people's skin color was, was darker. This was a black African in the very earliest days of the church being converted. Right? The Christian gospel did not go to Africa 
with the modern missionary movement and with colonial imperialism in the 17 and 1800s. The gospel of Jesus Christ went to the continent of Africa in the very earliest days of the church, and this is where it happened. Second, the location was symbolic of the next stage of gospel advance that Jesus had said was going to happen because this region was at the outermost edge of the Roman Empire, about 1,500 miles from Jerusalem. And Ethiopia was considered at the time by the Greeks and the Romans to be essentially the ends of the earth. The reference is intentional because that's exactly where Jesus said the gospel was going to go. So he's an Ethiopian. We know that. We also know that he's a high government official. It says he's a court official for Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Now, specifically, it says he's in charge of all her treasure. So at the very least, he's the personal steward for her, for her private fortune. But more likely, as most pe- people tend to think, he's like the treasury secretary for the kingdom. And the reason why most people think that is because the queen in, in, in this kingdom... Of, of the region of Ethiopia. Those, those kings and queens operated like this. The king, one commentator put it like this, the kings reigned, but they didn't rule. In other words, kings were believed to be descendants of the gods, and therefore, uh, they, 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 were, they were not to be concerned with the day-to-day affairs of running the empire. That job was put in the hands of the, of the queen, who for generations was given the title or given the name Candace. So this official, this African official, has a significant amount of power. It also says, not only is he an Ethiopian, not only is he a a high government official, but he's also a eunuch. Now, to be delicate, but to be clear, this meant that he had been surgically altered in such a way that it made it impossible for him to have a sexual relationship or to have children. Now, he was still a man. No surgical procedure can change the fundamental nature of of that, but, but this was a common practice among royal officials in the ancient world. And there were two primary reasons why this was a common practice. The first might be the most obvious. If he was going to have access to the king's wife, the king might want to remove any desire for him to take advantage of that access. In other words, it kept him trustworthy. Second, it also kept him focused. If he didn't have to worry about a wife, didn't have to worry about a family, didn't have to worry about those things, even the possibility of those things, even wanting or longing for those things, then he could be all about his job, a perfect high government official. Which means that sometimes this was something that happened to a man. In other words, a slave in the king's household was forced to become a eunuch in order for a job that the king had decided that person was going to have, and sometimes it could have been chosen by the man who viewed it as necessary for a career advancement if he wanted to serve in a particular role, right? Just a necessary cost of, of being important. One way or another, he's a eunuch, and I don't think that that's a peripheral observation, as I'll point out later, because being a eunuch might have had some career advantages in Ethiopia, but it made him an outcast in Jewish religious circles which would have created a problem for his stated desire to go worship at the temple. It also would have made him an outcast, essentially, in almost any society in the ancient world, because among ancient cultures, they they were completely built around the fathering of children and extending your name through your descendants, and that was impossible for him. So he was essentially, in in that sense, useless from a cultural standpoint. Now, we know that. We know that he was an Ethiopian. We know that he was a powerful official. We know that he was a eunuch. We also know, lastly, that he was apparently a God-fearer. 
and one who feared God. Now, that's, that was an official name that, was, that were given to Gentiles, the non-Jews, who nonetheless, though they were not Jewish by ethnicity, nonetheless recognized the Lord, Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, recognized the Lord as the one true God. Now, there's no indication as to how he came to, to know that, but, but perhaps it was through his travels as a government official, brought him into contact with, with Jews. Perhaps there was a small Jewish community in the kingdom of, of Ethiopia that had scattered that far south during one of the, uh, the great uh, uh, exiles of, of, uh, of the Jewish people. We don't know. We do know that he was obviously interested enough in learning more about this God and in worshiping this God that he was willing to take a considerable amount of vacation time and spend a considerable amount of money to travel 1,500 miles to Jerusalem. We don't know. We don't know what was going on in this guy's life, but something was happened. Had he become burdened with, with some sense of sin in his own life? Was he dissatisfied with, the, with his career, with the empty promises of power and wealth that had been given to him? We don't know. What, what, had, what had it been like in Jerusalem when he got there? How was he feeling when Philip encountered him right on his way back from Jerusalem? We know that from the gospel accounts that the Judaism of the time was almost completely preoccupied with outward appearances and with political drama. That's what characterized New Testament or this first century Judaism. And here was a guy trying to find out about God, maybe trying to relieve a great burden that he had been feeling in his life. And he goes to the temple or he goes to the synagogue and he's turned away or at least partially turned off by the hypocritical rules and the in-your-face politics of the, the Judaism of the time. We don't know. But we can take this away. Never assume that you know the people who are the most likely candidates for hearing and believing the gospel. Never assume that the rich and powerful are satisfied with what they have or that they don't have a sense of their own need and unworthiness. Never assume that the one who just probably wouldn't fit in with the church isn't the one who is coming to you with a desire to know about God. The Christian church had extended to the Samaritans. It had extended to some, some Greek speakers, but they were mainly the same color. They were mainly the same Jewish lineage, at least at their root. And they mainly had a broad agreement on cultural morals. But this guy was totally different. Different color, sexually altered, probably very few common interests with the other Christians of the time. But God was working. And this was the guy who was making the inquiry. That's point number one. Now, let's move on to Philip and his faithful witness. Now, we know a little bit about Philip already from the book of Acts, right? We know that when we first meet him in Acts chapter 6, they describe him as a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. We know that he had a heart of service. He was one of the uh, originally chosen sort of proto-deacons, these guys who were called to, uh, to serve the, the, uh, the food distributions to the widows in the early church. We know that when the persecution came to Jerusalem, that Philip went out to Samaria, to, uh, to the ethnically impure from a Jewish point of view. And he shared and preached the gospel to them, and, and, and many people believed and, and came under his ministry there. And now an angel comes to him, taps him on the shoulder, if you will, and says, look, I want you to rise, I want you to go up, and I want you to go toward the south to this road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then Luke, who, remember, is the author of the book of Acts, makes this comment for those who didn't know their geography. After the angel says this to Philip, Luke makes the comment, this is a desert place. 
And that would have been right. It was in the middle of nowhere. That's where, that's where Philip was being sent. The city of Gaza, one of the great cities of the Philistine uh, Empire, had been destroyed by Alexander the Great. It was basically in ruins at this time. And so the old Gaza road from Jerusalem to Gaza probably wasn't very commonly traveled anymore. And so this is what the angel is saying to him. You know, feel the weight of this request. Philip, this is what I want you to do. I know it seems like you have a very successful thing going on here in Samaria right now. You know, it seems like things are going really well, but I've got another job for you. I want you to go to this remote road to a ghost town, and I'll tell you more when you get there. And what's Philip say? Does he say, ah, I'm the wrong guy? Does he say, ah, the timing's wrong? Does he say that? No. He says he rose and he went. No indication of resistance. Not even, not even honest questions for the angel, right? So how long do you think I'll be gone, right? What do you have in mind when I get there? Should I be preparing for anything? Nothing. He just goes. And then when he gets there, the Holy Spirit points out the Ethiopian eunuch who is riding along in his chariot, and he says, you see that guy riding over there in the chariot? Yeah, him, that's the guy. I want you to go over to him, go over to the chariot, and say hi. Now, this amounts, basically, if you think about this, to running alongside a motorcade of an official delegation of a royal official. And the Holy Spirit just says, I want you to just go up to him, strike up a conversation. Yeah, yeah, and so he does. He's just like, you know, hey, you, there. You got a second? What's going on? Right? That's what he's asking him to do. It sounds almost, it sounds almost comical. And what's, what's, what's Philip do? Philip ran up to him. That's what it says. He's just like, okay, sure. Now, quick question. How do you think Philip got like that? Right? What, what, why? How do you get, like, obedience that's that reflexive and a heart that's just that open to whatever God might put in your path? Who do you want me to tell? Who do you want me to talk to? Okay, him? Okay, sure. Right? It only happens when you're so amazed, that, of, uh, so amazed by what you've been given that you can't just, you, you, you can't help wanting to find opportunities to share it with someone. And so an opportunity arises and you're like, oh, okay, sure, him? All right, fine. And it only happens when you so deeply trust the one who gave that message to you that you'll do whatever he asks. Now, the danger is assuming, the danger for me at least, is assuming that I would be a faithful witness if only God sent me an angel in the Holy Spirit. Well, I mean, if an angel came to me, sure. I mean, I would do it then, right? But Philip wasn't, Philip wasn't sitting around waiting for an angel. He was already busy. He was sharing his faith. He was sharing his faith actively. And when, I, I think when you're doing that regularly, you're much more aware of the leading of the Holy Spirit than you would otherwise be. Right? When was the last time you've, you've honestly said to God, God, show me someone today that you want me to talk about Jesus, talk to about Jesus? Right? There are no accidental encounters, and it's very convicting for me. We need to be ready for encounters like this. And I could tell you stories, and a lot of stories, about this in my own life, where I've been aware of God working like this, where I've been able to witness about Jesus in situations that I could not have designed but was privileged enough to be used. But for all the stories of the intentional interactions that I've had and I've experienced, and I'm not going to tell you any of those stories because, I'm, because it, it, it reminds me that there's probably about 10 times as many instances that I've missed or I've been oblivious or I've been so consumed with me and what's going on in my life or where I need to be next that I just am not listening. Now, God's sovereign, of course, but imagine the blessing that I miss every time my eyes are closed to the people that God has put around me. Philip's eyes weren't closed, and he obviously was prepared. Move to point three, right? Look at the clear understanding 
that he had of the message about Jesus and how God used that clear understanding of the gospel to bring the, this, this Ethiopian official to an understanding of who Jesus is. You see what Philip does here, right? This is a master class in how to engage people, right? He doesn't come up with, he doesn't come and start in with like a canned explanation of the gospel. He doesn't say like, okay, this is how I'm going to share it with you. This is how I memorize the outline, right? He starts at the exact point where the Ethiopian is. He, he hears him reading from the prophet Isaiah, right? Which would have been amazing. It re- would require, I mean, we think of like having a copy of the Bible is like, well, you just pick up a copy of the Bible. Having an Isaiah scroll would have been absolutely amazing, right? Incredibly rare, incredibly expensive, right? They just existed in libraries primarily, right? But here he hears this man reading from Isaiah, and this would have been common to read out loud, right, sacred text, particularly if that sacred text wasn't in your original language. So Philip hears him, and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian says, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And then he invites Philip to, to come up and read with him. He said, why don't you come tell me? Now, this is an opportunity. And it just so happens that he's reading from Isaiah chapter 53, as we would understand and number the chapters in Isaiah, verses 7 and 8 specifically. And it's a passage about a servant of God who is unjustly led to his death. And the Ethiopian says to Philip, about whom does the prophet say this? Is he talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? And what does Philip do? It says he opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now, this is absolutely remarkable. I would have loved to have been there for this, right? I mean, as a teacher of the Bible, the conversation here and the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples on the, on the road to Emmaus, these are probably two of the, of the conversations that I would have loved to have been present for more than any other. Right, to see and hear how, how the Old Testament was opened up and the line was drawn to, to Jesus. Because that's exactly what Philip does here. He draws the line. He traces the thread from Isaiah 53 to, to Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly how he did it. Where did he start? Did he go backwards first? He could have. He could have gone back to creation and the sin of Adam. He could have gone back to Abraham and the promise of blessing to all the nations. That would have been relevant to this Ethiopian. He could have gone to to Jacob, to the creation of the the nation of of Israel. That would have been relevant for this Ethiopian about where he had just come from. You know that nation? This is where it came from. It came from a guy named Jacob who had 12 sons, turned him into a nation. Could have gone to Moses and the law that would have shown the need for sacrificial atonement, for a lamb who was sacrificed that Isaiah was talking about. Could have talked to this royal official about the promise of a royal rescuer that had been given to King David. Could have gone all those places. We don't know exactly, but we do know that he explained to him about the prophet Isaiah. That was the scroll that the Ethiopian had in front of him. Could have probably reminded him about the holiness of God that Isaiah experienced in Isaiah chapter 6. Could have probably reminded him of Isaiah's chapter after chapter that the Ethiopian might have already read. Chapter after chapter of judgment upon the nations. Israel and all the nations for their sin against God. Which would have made it all the more meaningful when they talk specifically about the lamb going to the slaughter in Isaiah 53. The lamb. And this is where he might have started to draw the line. He might have told him about John the Baptist, who when he first saw Jesus said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He might have quoted Jesus himself, who said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
But one way or another, he would have gotten to the cross. He would have gotten to the recent events that had just happened in the city of Jerusalem where this man had just been. The death of Jesus that the prophets had predicted. The resurrection that proved the prophets had been right. What an amazing exercise when you think about it. Using the entirety of the Bible to bring people directly to the feet of Jesus. Now I want you to think about this for a second. Why would this message about a poor Jewish carpenter and homeless itinerant preacher, why would that message resonate so much with a rich Ethiopian Gentile eunuch? Because it would have taken a bit of convincing, I'm sure, for him to believe that this, that this promise was open to him. Now, I'm speculating here, but by the man's reaction, something clicked. Something became so amazing to him that this promise was not only true in the abstract, but it was true for him. Look, we don't have the details of the conversation, but I think the conversation must have gone something like this, or else I don't know how we can explain the -the over-the-moon joy that we see coming from the Ethiopian. It just doesn't make sense. It must have gone something like this. Philip must have said something like, look, I know you were in Isaiah 53, but I want you to unscroll just a little bit farther. I need to show you Isaiah 55. And Philip would have read to him from Isaiah 55, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. The invitation after the judgment and the explanation of the sacrificial suffering servant, the invitation that said, all who are thirsty, all who thirst, come. But the Ethiopian might have said to him, look, that sounds like a wonderful promise, but look, I've just been to Jerusalem, and it doesn't appear that that promise may be open to me. Because I went to the temple, and when they first saw me, they told me I couldn't access the courts of the temple because I'm a Gentile. See, my race is the wrong race, my skin is the wrong color. And when they got to know me better, they found out that I was the eunuch, and then I learned that I definitely wasn't allowed into the temple. Because they quoted to me Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1. And because I had this surgery to remove certain body parts, and I'm not clean now, it says in Deuteronomy, clean enough to enter into God's presence. And I think that's when Philip would have said to him, Oh, sir, oh, your honor, please unroll the scroll of Isaiah just a little bit more with me. And Philip would have read from Isaiah 56, verses 3 to 5. This is what it says. Let, the, let not the foreigner, Isaiah 56, verse 3, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And if the eunuch heard that, I'm sure it would have brought him to tears. He would have said, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. You mean mean I'm going to have a name? Eunuchs don't get names, right? They aren't remembered. You're saying I'm going to be remembered? Eunuchs don't have children, No sons and daughters to carry on their names. Eunuchs are forgotten. But you're saying that I'm going to have an everlasting name. How can that possibly be? 
And Philip would have probably taken him back to Isaiah 53 where they started. And he would have taken him back to the cross again. And he would have said, it can be. You can have a name. You are remembered because this lamb, this Messiah, this Jesus was taken and rejected by the same men who rejected you at the temple. And he was cut off. And when he cried to his father on the cross, there was silence because at that moment he was not remembered so that you could be remembered. And he did that for you so that you can have a name. That's the gospel. It's a gospel to the fatherless like this man who says, oh, you will be a father. You will have a generation that comes after you who will be your children and who will be blessed because of you. It's a gospel to the to the childless. It says you need a father. You need someone to look after you. You have a heavenly father who has adopted you into his family. And it's at this point that we see the response from the Ethiopian. And now it makes sense. He wants to be baptized. Like right now. Like pull over the chariot. Like let's do this now. There's some water. Remarkable providence. They're in the middle of the desert. They found a watering hole we got to pull over now. This is probably the last rest stop for miles. Let's do it right here. And this isn't, so you know, this isn't a regular circumstance for how we would handle baptism in the church, right? But I'm, I'm, I'm for one, kind of glad that Philip at this point didn't pull out his book of church order and kind of say, well, wait a minute, I'm not actually finding this as a, an instance. I'm not sure we can do this. Maybe I need, to, I need to send word to Jerusalem. Maybe they can send a quick committee down. Maybe we can do it that way. Just hold on. Hold on right here. No, he didn't do that. It's irregular, but it's exactly how God had planned it. Now, verse 37, you might have noticed when we read through, verse 37 is not in our translation because it's the, the, the text is not in the original manuscript, but even if it's a later insertion by, by, by later transcriptionists, it does give us an understanding still of what the early church must have assumed happened. Philip said, you can be baptized if you believe with all your heart. Then I'll baptize you. And the Ethiopian is said to have replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And we know that that was the formula in the early church. It's essentially what, what Paul told the Philippian jailer. What do I need to do? Believe. Repent. Believe. Believe in Jesus Christ. And then he was baptized. And that's exactly what happened here. So that's how we get from Philip's request to his, to his baptism. And so he was baptized. And in that moment, a black African, unclean, physically mutilated Gentile was embraced and welcomed into the church by a Greek-speaking Jew. Absolutely remarkable. Right? The Ethiopian would return to his home. Philip would leave for other ministry that God had called him to, eventually ending up in Caesarea. They certainly would never have met again in this life. But when one man's need and another man's faithful witness collided on that day, there was a change that reverberated in eternity. Imagine the conversation that they had when they both got there together. Now, there's two applications. Quickly as we close. Remember the eunuch. You are never too different. You are never too unlikely. You are never too compromised to be at a point where the gospel of Jesus Christ is not for you. The offer of the waters is open to you. Come, Isaiah said. Now remember Philip. Will Metzger wrote one book in his life. Became very 
popular in Christian circles. It's called Tell the Truth. We're going to sing a song in a second. I love to tell the story. I love to tell the story because I know it's true. Will Metzger's life was about telling the truth to whomever would hear. Now, is that our life? Is that you? Is that me? We have been given absolute, total absolution and forgiveness for our wrongdoing, complete freedom from our guilt, and a rock-solid promise of eternal life with a heavenly Father forever. And yet there's times when we're more likely to share with others some great new recipe or some great new craft beer that we've discovered than this news. But this is the best conversation that you could possibly have in heaven. Hey, Willie, (laughs) right? Keep sharing. Keep telling. What do you think the conversation that Willie had with this bus driver from Baltimore, what do you think that conversation was like this past week? These are the conversations that we ought to long to have in eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this news of Jesus Christ that welcomes those who seem to be the most unlikely. Lord, each of us are that man. Each of us are that woman. When we think of your holiness, when we think of your perfection, when we think of what is required, each of us is the most unlikely candidate for rescue and for salvation. And yet, Lord, that is us, adopted with an eternal Father, given a name and the promise of spiritual children that come after us, regardless of whether or not we're physical fathers or mothers. God, give us the courage, give us the joy that allows us to tell this story to whomever will hear. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.